Society builders paved the way to a better world, to a better day. A united approach to building a new society. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. Ooh. Society builders with your host, Dwayne Veron. Welcome to Society Builders, and thanks for joining the conversation for social transformation. In our last episode, we explored the rise of a network of over 60 Baha'i schools in Iran that emerged in the first 30 years of the 20th century in the midst of a society that was almost entirely illiterate. In some of the towns and villages where these schools were built, they provided their communities with literally the only schooling available to the population at large. And a key characteristic of these initiatives was that they provided schools for girls just as much as for boys, providing Iranians with just about the only opportunity to provide for the education of girls. And these schools quickly developed a reputation as being Iran's best schools. In fact, key ministers and even the Shah sent many of their children there for their education. It's such a remarkable achievement. But today, we're going to explore the impact that this network had, both for the Baha'i community and for wider Iranian society. And we're going to discuss the very sad and unfortunate circumstances that led to the shutting down of these schools by imperial edict. So our story continues. And once again, we're fortunate to have eminent Baha'i historian, Dr. Mujan Momen guide us through this remarkable chapter in Baha'i history. So today, we continue our discovery of educational reform in Iran, part two of my interview with Dr. Mujan Momen. Mujan John, welcome back to Society Builders. It's a great pleasure to be back. Now, let's talk more about the impact this had on these students. So we mentioned earlier that Iranian society was almost entirely illiterate, but within the Baha'i community, very quickly, the literacy rate became almost universal. How did this change their lives? How did this contrast, you know, in this illiterate society, a community that's almost entirely 100% literate, how did that change the fortunes, if you will, of the Baha'i community? Yes, again, this was a, a, a gradual thing, just because your children are going through school and becoming literate, you don't become literate necessarily. So so it was the question of these children gradually growing up and coming up through the ranks of the Baha'is as educated in a modern sense, in, in modern schools, educated children, and, and then youths, and then young men, and then young families, and so on. And so it was a, a gradual process of the Baha'i community becoming literate. But in fact, the Baha'is did help this along uh, by later in the sort of 1940s and 1950s, when they were trying to achieve 100% literacy. They also set up adult literacy classes for any adults in the community who weren't yet literate. So, so that they pushed the agenda of literacy very energetically and achieved this more or less universal literacy. And of course, the fact that the children were literate led on to them. Well, first of all, quite a number of them then went on to uh, university. They went to Beirut, where there was the American University in Beirut, which was a 
favorite place for Baha'i young people to go and then on to Europe and North America. And they had a university education there. And then they returned to Iran as very highly educated people who could play an important part in developing Iran, whether as teachers or as government uh, officials or as uh, just as businessmen helping to develop industry in, in Iran. Uh, so so they, they came back and played a, an important part in that. What about for girls? So so this is a society that doesn't really have a lot of roles for women. I mean, in the traditional society, what would happen to these girls when they got their education? How, how would they put that education to use? Well, there were very few opportunities for women to work. Most, I, I guess the fact is that most of them probably got married and, and brought up children. But of course, they would then bring up children as educated women and, and would help to educate their children better. But a few definitely became teachers. And gradually, other opportunities opened up, as such as nurses. In, in fact, the first person to return from abroad as a, having been trained as a nurse in, in America, in fact, was Qutsi Ashraf and, and uh, she was the first Iranian woman to to return from abroad as a as a trained nurse, and so these opportunities gradually came and 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 start and if, and then you know as we go into the nineteen forties and fifties, some businesses started to employ women and and of course Baha'i businesses in particular would employ women, so it was a gradual process. Now, Mujan John, earlier you referred to, you know, some of the American teachers who who came across to help with these schools. There was, in fact, a really interesting link between the Iranian and the American Baha'i communities that came about because of these these schools. You know, there were, of course, uh, you know, a number of American believers like, you know, uh, Susan Moody, Dr. Susan Moody, who came and helped with clinics and with the schools. Miss Lillian Capps, uh, who, who, you know, of course, was a teacher as well. And, and these were people who who passed away ultimately in Iran. And, and, and that very much touched the American Baha'i community, who who was also contributing financially in support of these schools. Could, could you talk a little bit about this interaction between East and West that was coming about as a result of these schools? Yes, um, Abdul Baha began as early as 1910, really, began encouraging Americans to go to Iran and help contribute to the development of Iran. And, and this was in two main areas, health and education. And in, in education, he encouraged a number of American Baha'is to go to Iran, and they became headmaster, in one case of the boys' school, and headmistress of the girls' school, and also teachers in the, in the girls' school. And again, they had the knowledge of what a Western curriculum was, because they'd been educated in America, and they, they had teaching qualifications from America. So they were able to guide the Baha'is in terms of setting up the schools and the curriculum to use and so on. But also they, they were an example to Iranian women, because if you've got a society that's just simply not used to women playing an active role in society and who've been told by their 
religious leaders, the Islamic clerics, that for women to take an active role in society would inevitably lead to corruption and moral degeneracy and all of these sorts of things. It was a daunting process to think of, you know, how are we going to get women active in our communities? And these American women coming across to Iran, taking an active role in the community, becoming teachers, having a profession, interacting freely with the men in society. All of these things really set a, an example for the Baha'i community of how that could happen. Uh, without the moral degeneracy, without yeah, the moral without, degeneracy. Yes, yes, that society was not in danger of collapsing into moral degeneracy if women had an active role in, in society. And that was a very important demonstration, if you like, that it was possible for this to happen and, and gave both the men the confidence that you know this could happen and the women the inspiration to make it happen. And so they started to do this. And, and as I say, these American women were very important right up into the 1930s and 40s and even the 1950s. The, the, when the Iranian community first allowed women to be elected onto assemblies, because initially there was this feeling that if women were sort of consulting with men in a private house, there must be immorality going on. So they, the Iranian Baha'is were very anxious to avoid this image being perpetrated in the general population. But eventually the, uh, they came to the stage where they said, okay, we, we're going to now take the step of allowing women to be elected onto assemblies. And the very first woman who was elected to the Iranian National Spiritual Assembly was in fact one of these Americans who had come across and who had been initially a teacher in the Baha'i schools, but had stayed on in Iran after the Baha'i schools closed. And Miss Sharp, her name was. She was the first woman to be elected to the Iranian National Spiritual Assembly. So, Mujahjan, it's such an amazing achievement. I mean, for, for the Iranian society as a whole, you have these schools, they're best in class, amazing schools, spread out all over the country in places that are not receiving an education through any other means. I mean, this all seems like a good thing. <laughs> How was it that this all came to a screeching halt in 1934? The context for that is that um, when Shoghi Effendi took up his leadership of the Baha'i community when he became the guardian, one of his goals, I mean, he had lots of different things that he was engaged in, but one of his goals was to establish the independent nature of the Baha'i community. Because and this wasn't just in Iran, even in the West. I mean, many people had the impression that the Baha'i faith was not a, an independent religion, but was rather a movement that was trying to reform all religions from within. So it was perfectly okay to remain, say, in a Christian church and still be a Baha'i. And so that was true in the West and in Iran as well. The Baha'is were outwardly, they appeared to be following Islamic customs and practices. So when they had a, a Baha'i wedding, you would actually get the local Islamic cleric coming along and reading the traditional uh, khutbah that, that, that would be the sort of uh, marriage ceremony, if you like, and funerals would be the same, and so on. So the Baha'is were not that distinguishable from the general population in terms of their practices. You know, behind closed doors, they would have 
their meetings and and they would have the Baha'i fast and say the Baha'i prayers and so on. But to outward seeming, they were following the Islamic practices and, and customs. And when Shoghi Effendi became guardian, and one of his aims was to establish the inter independent nature of of the Baha'i faith. So gradually he started giving instructions to the Baha'is, for example, that they should have weddings and funerals that were exclusively Baha'is, that didn't have any Islamic component to the wedding ceremony or to the funeral. And, and similarly, he sent similar instructions to, to the Western Baha'is that they shouldn't really continue to be members of a church and be a member of the Baha'i community at the same time. And a part of this was that he gave instructions that all Baha'i businesses and institutions should close on Baha'i holy days. They should observe the Baha'i holy days. Now, at that time, the Shah at that time, Reza Shah, was setting up a very highly centralized, very high, tightly controlled state, and he expected all institutions to obey his rules. And one day he noticed that there was no noise coming from the Tariyat school. The Tariyat school had his, had its playground right next to one of the royal palaces. So he was in a position to personally observe the fact that they were keeping the Baha'i holy day. So he asked, what, what's happening? Why is there no noise coming from the Baha'i Tariyat school? And his officials told him, well, it's one of the Baha'i holy days and the school is closed. And he was very annoyed that a school had closed down on a day that was not one of the designated days for schools to close, because he, his government had designated certain days for schools to close, and this school was closing on a, a different day. So he said to the Minister of Education that if they close down again on a day that's not an official day, they should close the school down. Any school that closed down on a day that wasn't an official day for closing down should itself close down. And so a message was sent to the Baha'i Assembly that if you close the school down again on a day that's not an official day for closing down schools, we'll close the school down. And the Assembly, of course, consulted with Shoghi Effendi about this, you know, what should they do given that there was this threat happening? And Shoghi Effendi said, well, it's a matter of principle that Baha'is don't, any business or institution that's actually run by Baha'is in the ownership of Baha'is cannot open on a holy day. So it's a matter of principle. So that you should continue to close the school on Baha'i holy days. So the very next holy day that came along, the Baha'i school closed. And, and the next day, the government issued a, an order for the Baha'i school to be closed down. This was the one in Tehran. And, and Fairly shortly afterwards, instructions went for other schools, all the other Baha'i schools to be closed. And, uh, well, that's what happened, basically. Do you think that the uh, the king and the ministers ultimately regretted that? Well, uh, I mean, the Shah was actually sending some of his own children to the Baha'i school. Other ministers and government officials were sending children to the Baha'i school. So I expect they did. I, I think the problem was that the Reza Shah was a very determined man. He was not a he was not the sort of person who would, as it were, bend. And he met his match in Shoghi Effendi, who also wouldn't bend on a matter of principle. And so I think everyone was very surprised by this sudden and very unexpected turn of events. And for a time everyone waited, expecting that things would get resolved in Iran. Things usually manage to get resolved through negotiation. You resolve these sorts of situations. But in this case, it wasn't going to happen. 
I mean, initially, the children who weren't Baha'is at these Baha'i schools went out and found other schools to go to. The Baha'i children hung on a bit longer, hoping that the schools would reopen, that some way would be found through the problem. Because this was, I think, more or less universally expected that something would happen and, and the schools would reopen, but they didn't. So eventually the, 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 the Baha'i children also had to sort of start looking around for, for schools to, to, to go to. And, and they had, in the larger cities, they had plenty of choice because by that time there were the government schools and, and other religious communities like the Christians and the Jews and the Zoroastrians had opened their own schools. And so there was a, a choice of schools to go to. And, and well, there was some problem because there was some I should say, reluctant to take on some of the Baha'is in some of the schools. But overall, it was it was a soluble problem. But but of course, in the smaller schools, in the in the small towns and in the villages, there was not an alternative. And, and the Baha'i children were sort of just suddenly thrown out of edu the education process at whatever stage they were in. And in some of these small towns and villages, the Baha'i Assembly consulted and the one of the solutions that they came to, for example, was to set up education, not in a formal school, but rather informally in the houses of the members of the community, using teachers brought in or, or using the teachers that, that had been in the school that had been closed down, but having the classes in, in people's homes. For example, in Najafabad, which was a small town in, in near Esfahan, they uh, set up these classes and, and it was in fact uh, Mr. Abulwasem Faizi, who was later a hand of the cause, who came to the town and taught in these schools and, and sort of organised the, the, the schools and taught there for a, for a number of years. And I guess it would be decades in many of these communities before they had any other kind of formal education opportunities. Yes, I mean, the, the, the schools were being built in Iran at the time, but it was the, the, in the larger towns initially that they were being built. But eventually the schools did reach the down to the level of, of the villages. And, and if a school was opened in a village, then by and large, the Baha'i children would, would go to that school and, and stop any informal education that they were receiving. You know, Mujanjan, this is such an amazing chapter of Iranian history, not not Baha'i history, of Iranian history. But it's remarkable when you look at so many of these scholarly articles on the history of education in Iran that that this chapter, this story is not really a part of that narrative. I mean, they they all talk about, you know, the Christian education in the northwestern part of the country, the Christian schools. But, you know, the Baha'i story just seems to be such a, a blind spot in Iranian history. Certainly you get why the government doesn't tell that story, but why is it that Iranian scholarship has, has had such a blind spot to, uh, to this story? Well, I don't think it's just this story. The, the Iranian scholarship has had a blind spot towards Baha'is in general, and, and the story of the Baha'i schools is, is just one aspect of that. So in the histories generally that have been produced um, there's no mention of the baha'i contribution to society even the of the existence of a baha'i community in iran and this is just well twofold really but mainly it's the sort of prejudice of of the historians we have 
clear evidence of some of the leading historians in Iran being very prejudiced against the Baha'is actually printing in their supposedly academic histories just lies about the Baha'is and the Babi community and the Baha'i community, even things that are very easily disprovable. They, they put in their books for some unexplained reason. They make statements that it's so easy to, to refute because the evidence is, is out there. But you know, this is this is scholarship in Iran, and and uh, Baha'is have had to live with this for for a hundred years or more. And of course, Western scholars who are who are trying to do work on the history of Iran and the history of education in Iran are, are dependent on their for their sources on the material produced in Iran. So they reflect what the Iranian scholars have produced, and so they have generally ignored the Baha'i presence in Iran generally and the Baha'i presence within the education system of Iran because that's what their sources tell them because the sources that they consult are what's published in Iran and that's that's what's published in Iran. Very few Western scholars have had access to Baha'i sources of information about these matters and Baha'is themselves have been not very good at, at producing historical accounts of these events. But that's all changing. Uh, recently, an Israeli scholar has produced a whole book on the Baha'i schools in Iran, and this was published by a, an academic publisher in, in Britain. And, and so there's no longer an excuse for people not to know about this story. They, they, it's now there for people to read. There's been another book that, that had articles about the Baha'i community in Iran published by an academic publisher in, in Britain, and, and that had a chapter on the Baha'i schools in Iran. And there's also been a, an article in an academic journal about the Tahrir schools in, in Tehran and so on. So it's, it is gradually changing, and even Iranian scholars are now reading about these things and, and starting to introduce it into their accounts of, of Iran. So Mujanjan, this is such a good lesson for us. I mean, now the Baha'i communities, of course, have this focus on society building. And really, when we look to the example of this early Iranian Baha'i community, we have you know, this amazing example. What, what can we learn about society building today from the experience of the early Iranian Baha'i community around this educational discourse? Well, we are today being asked to engage in society building, and that means looking around the reality of our society and uh, identifying the needs of our society and then looking at the capacities within the community and among like-minded people and uh, and then addressing those needs. And that's exactly what the Iranian Baha'i community did in the early years of the 20th century, they looked at their society and they came to the conclusion that what they needed was schools, modern schools. Uh, and then they worked together, collaborated to bring this about, overcoming the obstacles that they faced in bringing this about, and also working with like-minded people in the community who shared their vision of what the needs of their community were and, and were willing to collaborate with them. They, through this joint effort, brought these schools into being, and, and that's much the same as what we're being asked to do today. It's 
a wonderful, inspiring example. So thanks again, Mujanjun, and and thank you also for your contributions to Baha'i Scholarship. Keep at it. <laughs> You're doing such an amazing, prolific job in this arena. Well, thank you for giving me an opportunity to talk about this fascinating chapter in the history of the Baha'i faith. And of course, I want to thank you, the audience, for joining us today. Thank you for joining in the conversation on social transformation. In our last four episodes, we've explored how Baha'is in the cradle of our faith in Iran engage with society building in their time. In our next episode, we shift our attention westward as we explore how the early American Baha'i community engaged with the race unity discourse of their day, leaving an enduring impact that continues to shape the civil rights movement even today. It's truly a remarkable history, so make sure you tune in. That's next time on Society Builders. Society builders paved the way to a better world, to a better day. A united approach to building a new society. There's a crisis facing humanity. People suffer from a lack of unity. It's time for a better path to a new society. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. For social transformation, society builders. So engage with the local communities and explore the exciting possibilities. We can elevate the atmosphere in which we move. The paradigm is shifting, it's so very uplifting. It's a new beat, a new song, a brand new groove. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. Join a conversation for social transformation. Society builders. The Baha'i faith has a lot to say Helping people discover a better way With discourse and social action Framed by unity Now the time has come to lift the game And apply the teachings of the greatest name And rise to meet the glory of our destiny Join a conversation For social transformation Society builders For social transformation, society builders.